be seated. If you will, go ahead and take your Bibles out this morning and turn with me to uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. do want to say Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers. Um, I do not have a Mother's Day sermon prepared. I typically uh, try not to preach Mother's Day sermons or Father's Day sermons. We've done that from time to time, but that's typically not our approach. Uh, our approach is uh, wherever we are in God's Word and whatever the series of study that we're in, that's usually where we just uh, stick to it, and so we'll continue to do that this morning as we are in a uh, series called Core Values. And basically what we're doing is we're coming back to who we are as a church. Um, we are trying to flesh out uh, what our mission statement uh, is, and that is that we exist to glorify God by making mature those who believe. And so the core values simply are uh, five statements that uh, we believe are uh, a connected pathway. They're not five individual pathways, but they're all a connected pathway uh, towards spiritual maturity. And that if we will practice these core values in our life, then what we will experience is the spiritual uh, growth and, and maturation and maturity that the Bible expects out of those who claim the name of Christ. And so in week one, we, talk, we said that uh, found people find people. And that's just simply that uh, Christians, uh, or as the Bible would call us, disciples, that's more of the common name used in the Bible, is, is disciple, not Christian. We don't even see that word until Acts chapter 12, when at Antioch they were first called Christians. But the predominant term in the phrase used to describe uh, followers of Christ as disciples. And so, disciples make disciples. That's what we do. Uh, we, uh, we seek out those who are not disciples, uh, not to force them into, as Islam or some other religions uh, attempt to do, to, to uh, force discipleship, but... Uh, we believe what Jesus told us, and that is to take this gospel, this good news, into the world, and that if we did that, what we would find in our going is that we would find people that are ready to believe and to follow Christ. And so um, that's what we do. We've made that term evangelism much harder than what it really is. We've made it a scary term. Uh, we've made it... We, we've, we've almost analyzed it to such a degree that we have paralysis, that we're afraid that we're going to say something wrong or not be able to answer the right question. And I would encourage you to come on Wednesday night. We're walking through uh, parts of the book of Acts, just reading through the book and seeing how the early church uh, took the gospel to the world. And it is in ways that um, are very simplistic, are, very ways, are ways that are very transferable, uh, into our everyday life, and uh, they just simply, as they were living their life and as they were going about their life, their conversation centered around the most important thing in their life. That's how evangelism happens. 
Did you know that you're evangelizing all the time? Whatever you talk about the most is what's most important to you. That's your evangelism. I mean, we're, we're, we're all trying to communicate a story to other people. And that story is always going to be what's most important. Our sport, uh, our hobby, our work, money, relationships, children, whatever it might be. And when Jesus is number one, when He's the center, when, 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 when we've pushed all of our chips in on Him, He becomes the primary and the predominant theme of our conversation. And so sharing Jesus with other people becomes very easy. Remember, it's not, about, it's not about the number of people that we bring to Jesus. It's about the number of people that we take Jesus to. That's the key. It's not trying to get them to, to church. It's about getting Jesus to them. And if you get Jesus to them, Jesus will get them to church. That's just that's the natural outflow. Then week two, we, we talked about that um, uh, you, can't, you can't outgive God. And we talked about last week the importance of financial stewardship. And so I won't go back into all the details uh, about that. You can go online. You can go to the church website. And you can, you can listen to that sermon. You can go to our YouTube page and watch the sermon. Um, but we have a definitive call. Our giving tells a story. And then one day God is going to retell that story in front of everybody. It's, it's amazing to me, we, we try to keep our giving on a down low here, like hush, hush, nobody, you know, you're not supposed to know what people give, right? And then, you know, we, we send you a, you know, a uh, envelope every year uh, that lets you know how much you gave. And uh, I love it, when I went to Italy uh, on a mission trip back in 07, we walked into the church that we were working with, and they had their, they were kind of old school, kind of like, some old Baptist churches. They had the attendance board where you walked in. You know how many people were at church on Sunday? Anybody remember old attendance boards? Um, but they, they, I mean, like, they went to a whole nother level. They posted membership giving on a board that was like 10 times bigger than the attendance board, and it had everybody's name and it had what everybody had given. <laughs> You know why? Because your giving tells a story. And, and, and we can hide our giving now, but one day, the Lord's going to tell the story about what we did or did not do with what He gave us. We're going to give an account for that. There, there's an accountability issue to that. We saw that Jesus is watching a little lady bring two, basically what amounts to be a penny and put it in the offering plate. And Jesus points her out and tells the disciples, she gave more than all of those rich people gave. Why? Because she gave it all. Why? She, she pushed all of her chips in on Jesus. She really lived by, Lord, if you don't give me bread today, then I'm not going to eat. And so we have a call to as followers of Christ, to leverage the, the bountiful resources that God has given us for the kingdom of God and for, and for the needs of uh, other people. And then today we come to save people, serve people. And, and I'm going br- to come at this from a different approach 
than I've, than I've ever... I preached, I went back and looked. I got like a lot of sermons logged in this church on serving. And, and it's usually sermons aimed to get you to serve. I went back and looked at a lot of the old sermons where I would do a, ser- a sermon on serving, and then at the end of the sermon, uh, I was encouraging people to sign up for different areas of service. not going to do that today. Going to come at this from a totally different perspective, and actually going <laughs> to preach a passage of Scripture that I've never preached before, and I am pretty confident that I've never heard preached before. And you know what? When I first read it, I had to think about, had I ever, could I ever, I know I've read it, because I've read through the Bible several times in the past, so I know I've read it, but it's not, a, it's not one of Jesus' stories that I ever really remember reading. So, Luke chapter 17, very short, four verses, starting in verse 7. Jesus says these words, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come in at once and recline at the table? Now, usually when we come in from the field, you know, work, it's, you know, we don't recline at the table, but we recline in the easy boy, right? I mean, that's what you're looking When it's been a long, hard day at work, it's just like, give me something to drink and where's the recliner? I don't want to talk to, you know, my spouse. I don't want to talk to my kids. I, I, need, I need a moment of decompression. Mothers, you will, you'll find this uh, kind of interesting, I think. There was, back in the 1950s, uh, there was a women's publication that was, I don't remember the name of it, and I, sh- I should have wrote it down, but I didn't, that came out. Uh, that was very popular, I should say. And basically, it, it was teaching women how to be good housewives. Because back then, very few women worked outside the home. They were homemakers, which is a job in and of itself, right? Come on, homemakers. Y'all, y'all nod your head. That's a job, right? Running a household is a job. And so, what was interesting about this one particular month, they had an article about how, to, how you should treat your husband when he comes home from work. It was classic. It don't fly today, and, and women today would balk at it and rip the article up and say all kind of mean things about the article. I mean, I mean you, you're just like, how did people really think like that? Now, a woman wrote the article. It wasn't like some man wrote this article. It was a women's magazine, and a woman wrote it. And basically, here was the nutshell of it. When he comes home, you should have the house in the best-kept condition that it could possibly be in that you should have a beverage of his choice prepared and ready, and that you should have a paper ready for him to read. And then when he comes in, uh, uh, escort him to his, his favorite chair, to where he can relax and put his feet up, serve him his favorite beverage, and keep the kids away from him for at least the first 30 to 45 minutes that he is home. I thought the guys might say amen, but we're scared, aren't we? We're not going to say amen because your wife's sitting there. And, she, <laughs> and well, I, guys, this is what you're going to, even if you think about, honey, what did you think about that? Don't even go there because I'll go ahead and tell you what she's thinking. Don't you ever think that that's going to happen in your house. 
we come a long way since then. And, and, and so when we, when we read this, we're like, yeah, it's a hard, long day. You should come in and recline at the table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? You get what Jesus is saying? Hey, like the servant comes in from a long, hard day, and instead of reclining at the table, he's like, look, what you're going to do is you're going to serve me supper, and before you serve me, you're going to get dressed right, you're going to clean up, put on some proper clothes, and then you're going to serve me. And then after I eat and drink, then you'll get to eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. What is this text trying to teach us this morning? Well, first, for 21st century Western people, this passage is a little, I think, when I read it, it's a little shocking. It, it kind of it grates on our sensibilities. We ask ourselves, how can such a passage even be in the Bible, right? One that is, it seems cold, it seems callous, it seems to lack gratitude and appreciation. Furthermore, one that appears to support the demeaning and mistreatment of others. A cursory reading of today's passage leaves its readers wondering, how could someone in power treat someone else that's a servant in such a manner? You see, it really, every word of this passage runs contrary and against the grain of our culture today. It's, in essence, antithetical to our culture. It's archaic at best. And such a passage, what it really does for many of us, and for many people that read it, it just simply uh, confirms our suspicions that duty is really just a sanitized word for abuse. And another word for manipulation and control. But here's the question that we really need to ask ourselves this morning, and it's a question you need to ask yourself anytime you read a passage of Scripture in the Bible. Why is this passage in the Bible? And that's what I want to try to answer this morning. Well, first, and this is not a point, but just something we need to clarify. First of all, this was not written to 21st century people. This was written to 1st century people. So we kind of got to understand the audience in which it was written. And he, listen, what's, what's bothering you and me when we read this passage is not at all bothering the disciples. They're not surprised by Jesus' description of servanthood. Why? Because it was the typical of how one thought and acted in their day. What bothers the disciples, and trust me, they are really bothered by this passage. What they're bothered by is not the description of this poor servant. They're bothered by the, the, the fact that Jesus is telling them that they are supposed to be Servants like this. They're not bothered by the way a servant is supposed to act. What they're bothered by is that Jesus is telling them this is the way they're supposed to act. The text is really tailored to teach us, and this is the approach I want to come at this morning, how a servant is to think. What is the mindset 
of a servant. It teaches us that really there's two trains of thoughts this morning. And here it is. Two points to the sermon. The master's desires are more important than the servant's desires. The master's desires are more important than the servant's desires. Most people in our churches don't buy into the... Uh, don't buy into the, that mindset anymore, at least not in the Western church. Our culture really conditions us to believe that we're number one, that you deserve the best from everybody around you. Your life is supposedly like a movie. You're playing the star and role, and everybody else is nothing but a supporting cast whose, at, whose job is to keep the spotlight on you. You can't say amen, you're at least say ouch. The issue is old as the human heart. It's not new. It's been around since our first parents fell, fell prey to its desire in the garden. And ever since then, every one of us has eaten from the bitter fruit of it. Adam and Eve disobeyed God because their heart believed Satan's lie that God really is a dictator and you can't trust Him. They wanted to live life on their own terms, not the Lord's. Do you remember what Satan kept saying? Did God really say that? I mean, look, really what he's trying to do is, he knows that if you have this, what did he say? You'll be like God. Some of you remember from many years ago, what did we learn about that passage? The problem is we're already made in God's image. And instead of being the image bearer of God, Satan was saying, why don't you, why don't you just usurp God and become your own God? And Adam and Eve bought into that lie. They, they ate the fruit. They took the bait. And today, that's what people want to do. They want to live their lives on their own terms. Even many people that I meet that call themselves Christians uh, uh, seem to have this delusional idea that they can live life like they want and do what they want, when they want, how they want, regardless of what the Lord says. The Me Too movement has exposed abuse against women in our day, and the Me First movement has turned us all against our Creator. The Me First movement. The Me First mentality supposes that all of life is engineered somehow to benefit me. We cannot conceive that the master's needs are more important than, or the master's desires are more important than our desires. This is the ultimate form of idolatry. It's the idolatry of self. We, we put ourselves up in the number one position. It is the great sin of America. Our culture tells us that we are the most important, but Jesus comes and dismantles our culture, our cultural belief that we are most important. The gospel tells us that serving our master, the Lord Jesus Christ, that is our priority. You see, as great as America is and, as, and, and all the greatness that America stands for, one of the great 
teachings of our country that is most detrimental to us is the me first teaching, the I'm autonomous, the pull, the pull yourself up by your bootstrap mentality. That you can become anything and everything you want to be. And listen, again, that's, all of that's true in America. But we're not Americans. We're Christians. You remember what we said back several months ago? You can either be an, an American who is a Christian or a Christian who is an American. And whichever word is the adjective tells the noun what to do. So if you're an American who is a Christian, then your American ideas inform, tell your Christian self what to do. But if you're a Christian who is an American, then your Christianity tells you how to behave as an American. And what we need Christians to do is to start behaving like Christians and not necessarily like Americans. The American idea is a great idea, but it's not the perfect idea. The only perfect idea for humanity is the idea of being a Christian. And the Bible says that when we become Christians, we become a servant of God, which means that we no longer have any rights of our own. And that's not, that's, that, that doesn't put us in a place of bondage, that puts us in a place of liberty. You see, Adam and Eve could do anything they want except one thing. You know, they had one command that they could not do. And somehow they thought that that was restrictive. Somehow they thought God was keeping something from them. And listen, when we read the Bible and we see all that the Bible says that you can do and that you can't do, what you and I see, see in that is we see restriction from freedom instead of seeing the boundaries of freedom. God is not restricting us from freedom. He's telling us this is how far freedom can go. But if you cross this boundary, you will leave freedom safety and you will wander into bondage. And the first boundary, and the most often crossed boundary, is the boundary where you and I say, you know what? My life is mine. I'm going to do what I want to. Boy, if Jesus would have had that mentality, we'd all, we'd all be in trouble right now. It's a good thing He wasn't up in heaven when the, when the Father... Said, you know what? The plan to rescue sinners is that you will become like them. You will you will succeed where they fail, and in the end, you will be treated as as they deserve to be treated. Good thing Jesus didn't say, "Well, that sounds pretty unfair." I mean that that's not the life I want to go live. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. But you know what he also said? He said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. In serving the Master, we learn what His desires are for us. We learn what we should desire. His desire is that we become like His Son, who was the greatest servant of all. We become more like Christ when... Uh, when 
The master desires are more important than our desires. When we serve, we imitate the life of Christ and participate in the life of Christ. If you want to be like Christ and you want to participate in the life of Christ, then, then look, step number one is, serve, is being a servant. Step number one is saying, my life is not my own. Step number one is saying, Lord, whatever you want me to do, that's what I'll do. Why? Because I know that no matter what my flesh tells me, no matter what the world tells me, no matter what the devil tells me, this is the best for my life. And you know far better what's better for me than I do for me, even though I think I know what's best for me. You see, when we serve, something happens. And this is, this is the painful part of service. It dethrones you off of your throne. It, it, and you know what I've learned about kings? There's no king that likes to be dethroned off of their throne. Not one. Not one king wants to be dethroned off their throne. And listen, the king that sits on the throne of your heart, self, does not want to relinquish its position. You see, what serving does is that serving kills our selfishness. Why? Because it forces us to put others ahead of ourselves. What serving does is that it takes the scalpel of God's sanctification into parts of our heart that... It, that only it can affect. Serving is the key to liberate us from the bondage of self-centeredness. Why? Because it turns us inside out. You know, for years we have, well, for years, just me personally, I have, I have pled and begged and, 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 and did everything I could to get people to go on mission trips. And one of the biggest reasons why I've tried to get people to go on mission trips is not because, you know, I, you, you want to expose people to different cultures. You want, you want people to, especially when you go out of the country, you want people to see that the vast majority of the world does not live like we live here in America. And, and, and there's so many reasons to, to take people on mission trips. But for me, always at the heartbeat, because I knew that in one week or ten days, uh, of a mission trip, we were not going to change where, whatever, wherever we went. Okay, the the only change that's going to happen is those people that are going to be there long term. So we were just coming alongside to kind of support them and whatever they were doing. But the biggest reason to do missions is because of one aspect of missions that I, that that I would see happen over and over and over again is I would see self centered people become selfless. I would see people that were turned inward and only thought about themselves be, be turned outward. I, I would see people that only thought about their own needs get broken by God's Spirit when they would see the needs of other people. And all of a sudden, for the first time, they started thinking about somebody else besides themselves. But did you know that Jesus lived His entire life thinking of others rather than Himself? Now, now listen, the, the Bible doesn't say we, we totally ignore 
self-care. Because there's, there's other verses with talking about, servant, about serving others that, that does talk about, I mean, there's a certain amount of care that we have to have for ourselves. But we also are to put others ahead of ourselves. And we'll see that at the very end here in a moment. Tim Keller, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, writes these words. Pastors often hear, I work my fingers to the bone in this church, and what thanks do I get? I, was, I tried to count how many times in 30 years of preaching I've heard that. A lot. I even said it myself. Is this the way it is? Your service was for thanks? I'm still quoting Keller. Then this is what I love what he said. Are you in your right mind? Servanthood begins where gratitude and applause ends. Y'all just won't go on home right now. Just If everybody write that down, I'll say amen. We'll all go home. And you take that and you remember that. And this will be a successful sermon. Servanthood begins where applause and gratitude end. So the first thing we learn is that the master's needs are more important than ours. And then next, we learn that our obedience is more important than our rights. Last point. Our obedience is more important than our rights. Okay, Americans, y'all listen up. You don't have any rights in God's kingdom. No, I take that back. You got one. You got the right to do what he tells you to do. That's your right. That's not bad. It's not bad when the person that's telling you what to do is always right. See, that's the problem when we have certain leadership, right? Because leadership is not always right, right? Why? Because they're fallible. They can, they can tell us to do the, the wrong thing. But the, the thing with God is, the reason why He says you don't have any rights is because I'm always right. So what you have the right to do is to do what I tell you to do. Why? Because it's always right. Jesus does not say the servant thanked the, ma thanked the, the servant. We think the servant had a right to be appreciated for his service, but there's nothing in the text that speaks about rights or entitlement. Instead, Jesus says uh, that we are unworthy servants. We only have done what was our duty. That's what the servant said. Rights are addicting. My right to be appreciated, to be treated like I should be, to be paid what I'm worth to have the last word, and so forth. However, rights mitigate the mindset of a servant. All of us have probably, probably been hurt by abusive spiritual leaders who have taken advantage of us, who have suppressed uh, us. But Jesus is not talking about abusive leadership. Here he is simply focusing on how a servant thinks. A servant realizes his or her obedience is more important than his or her entitlement.
This verse of Scripture might be one of the most important verses in the Bible after salvation. You should memorize this verse. I memorized this verse all the way back in 1989. It was one of the very first verses that I committed to memory. I have been crucified with Christ. It is not I who live. No longer I who live. You got that? Why? I'm crucified with Christ. I no longer live. But, here's the good news, but Christ lives in me. And, conjunction, connecting two thoughts together, the life I now live. So I'm crucified, but I'm still living. I'm living because Christ lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, how do I live it? By faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen, living the crucified life, living with obedience being more important than your rights, is, is what it means to really live. That's what it really means to live. You see, when you and I, when we disobey God, when we refuse to follow God's plan and path, what we are doing is we are refusing the best for something that we think is the best. We really, we look, to say it another way, we really fail to live fully human. We are really living a dehumanized life. Because to really live and to really live fully human is to live in obedience to God. Anything else is, is, is inhumane. It's unhuman. It's inhuman. The text reminds us that we have been crucified with Christ. We are hung on a tree with Him. Just as nails were put through his body, so nails are put through our rebellion and sin. The nails that pierced Christ have pierced our rights, our egos, our reputation, our self-dependence. Christ died so that we might die to self and live for him. When you, when you were crucified with Christ, you died, and all your sinful habits and ten, tendencies died too. Now there's an interesting book that was written about spiritual, uh, the growth of some of the great spiritual leaders of the last 300 years. People like George Mueller, D.L. Moody, uh, Jonathan Goforth, Amy Carmichael. These are some of the great saints of the last 300 years. And the, the guy, uh, Miles Stanford, who wrote this book, came to a really inter interesting conclusion uh, about these people. And this was his conclusion. Listen to this. He said... These Christian leaders, it took an average of 15 years in their personal spiritual growth to move from working for Christ to the place where Christ was working through them. So what am I trying to say? 
It's a process. Becoming a servant, like Christ calls us to be, developing this mindset that we're reading about this morning is going to take time. It's going to take time. Over time, you're going to lose your rights. Over time, you're going to learn that giving up your rights is not a negative. It's not bad for your life. It's what's best for your life. You're going to realize that that's becoming a servant and, and, and obeying and giving up all of your autonomy is actually going to lead you into pastures of freedom and of pastures of grace and pastures of growth. Listen, you cannot hold on to your rights and rightly serve the king. Gordon MacDonald said, you can tell whether you're becoming a servant by how you act when people treat you like one. How do you respond when you get treated like a servant? Nobody wants to, nobody wants to cop to that one. I mean, that's the ugly side of us, right? Huh? How many of y'all start mumbling under your breath? How many of y'all can't wait to find somebody else to start talking to? You won't ever believe I was that, you know. And then you, you, you just got you, you to you get it out of your system. But where does servanthood begin? Where gratitude and appreciation, appreciation ends. And some of us, it's going to take a thousand deaths to die to get there. But if you're Christ, that's where He's taken all of His servants. That's what He's trying to work out in you. He knows how me-centered you are, but He's going to take you from me-centered to we-centered, to centering on other people. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions here, and then we're going to sing one more song. Are you serving or self-serving? Don't ask. Look, I need to go back to what I've always taught us. Don't ask yourself that question. Ask somebody else. Am I self-serving Or do I serve others? Whose needs are more important? Yours or the Master's? What's your focus? Your rights or your obedience? The seeds of servanthood are implanted in us at salvation, yet they must be cultivated if we are to be transformed into the servant of which Christ speaks. Full-grown oaks are not produced in three years. Neither are servants. I'm going to read you a passage of Scripture, and then we're going, to, we're going to end. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. This is Paul talking about Jesus. Let each one of you not look only to his own interests. See, we're not, we're not supposed to totally forget about ourselves but also to the interest of others. Have this mind 
among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So what we're talking about for the Christian is not beyond our ability. It is ours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We like that, but listen, the only way you get exalted is you got to go low. Watch what Jesus said. Watch what he said, John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You know what? That, that could be a good prayer tomorrow morning. Father, I have not been saved to do my own will but to do the will of you who saved me. Or how about this? John four thirty four. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Father, today, as I rise out of my bed, make me as hungry to do your will as I will be to eat food. John 5, 19, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. How about this? Heavenly Father, today, as I look at Your Word, and as I see what Your Word tells me to do, help me to do only what I see You doing in Your Word. One more, John 5, 30. I can do nothing of my own. This is Jesus. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Father, today, as I live, as I go to my job, as I go to school, as I, as I do whatever it is that I'm doing today, help me to seek your will and not my own in every situation. Then I want to leave you with this poem. There's much debate on where it actually originates from. Uh, some say that it uh, originated in 1980 uh, in a hut, a mud hut in Rwanda, Africa, that a young man uh, about the age of some of our teenagers had been captured, and he was being tortured by uh, Muslims and asked to recount his faith. And he wouldn't. And so it was said of him that he declared who he was by inscribing these words on the walls of this mud hut prior to his death. And this is what he said. He said, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I won't look back, slow down, let up, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed, my present makes sense, and my future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, small knees, I mean small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, chintzy giving, and dwarf goals. 
I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, uh, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I now live by presence, lean by faith, love by patience, live by prayer, and labor by power. My my pace is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions few, my God reliable, and my mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, deterred, lured away, turned back, diluted, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I am a servant of Jesus. I must go until heaven returns, give until I drop, preach until all know, and work until he comes. And when he comes to get his own, he'll have no problem recognizing me. My colors will be clear. That's a servant. That's a servant. That's the servant mindset and the servant mentality. The servant says, no matter what, I lay down all of my rights for the one who is always right. I lay down all of my supposed freedoms for the one true freedom. The freedom of serving Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a freedom that is. A freedom to be free from ourselves. Oh, Father, maybe there's just some in our midst. They they need to be... They need to get tired of what they call freedom because our freedom never really ends in freedom. It's, it's only a continuation into bondage. And living in your freedom doesn't make our life easier, but it sure does make our life better because it provides us in the midst of our turmoil, peace, confidence, assurance, that no matter what is going on, you are always working out good for your people. That no matter what's going on, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. That no matter how bad life gets, that life is never fully placed on our shoulders. For you bear our burdens. And no matter if all forsake us, we have the assurance that we are never alone. But only servants can have, can have that life. It's only available for those who, who confess you as Savior. It's only available to those of you, for those who leave their autonomy behind, who leave, leave their self-centered lives behind, their me-centered life, and, and, and say, the Master's desires are greater than my desires. Obedience is greater than my own autonomy. It's greater than my own rights. And so, Father, if there are people watching or people that are here this morning that have never surrendered to You as Lord and Savior, who have continued to live in their own strength, and they continue to find one frustration after another, I pray that they would just see that 
That's not, that's not you being angry at them. That's you being loving towards them. Because you, you frustrate their plans because you want them to see your plan for their life. The plan of salvation, the plan of confessing their sin and putting their faith and trust and resting in you as their Savior. And then, Father, for those in this room and watching that have done that, Father, some of us have, we, we've slipped back into old patterns of life and slipped back into old ways of behavior. And, and yeah, we may have laid down our rights some time back, but we sure have picked those rights back up. And, and our servant mentality is not a servant mentality. We, we may be serving, Father, but, oh, but we're not. <laughs> when gratitude and, 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 and uh, applause and, 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 and people's acknowledgement of what we've done, when it doesn't come, we become bitter in our service. And some of us have stopped serving altogether because we didn't feel appreciated. We didn't feel honored enough. We didn't get enough pat on the backs. But Father, what our text doesn't tell us today, which your word does go on to tell us, is that no deed done in this world for you goes unrewarded. Oh, it, we may be like some of the Old Testament characters who never saw your promise fulfilled while they lived on this earth, but they have seen your promise fulfilled. They may not have received that reward on this earth, but they have received their reward in heaven. But you can't reward people who don't first have the right mindset and that's to serve as though there is no reward. That is to serve because it is the only right response to someone who has served us and given us far more than we could ever give back. And so if, we've, if we find ourselves in that place this morning, I just pray that you would just grant repentance, a fresh renewing of our commitment and of our faith to you, a fresh commitment back to serving without the need for applause or appreciation, getting back to the mindset and the mentality that is of Christ and of this text. And then, Father, maybe... There are some of us that are really serving in this way right now. Father, may we pray as well. And may we lift our voices up to you and say, Father, thank you for allowing me to be a part of what you're doing. But keep me away from the pitfalls that await me as a servant of yours. Father, the work that needs to be done in the hearts and lives of people this morning is a work that only you can do. And so we just entrust these moments ahead that you will do the heart work that only you can do so that you might be glorified and others might experience your goodness in their life. 
And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? Would you sing one final song with us this morning?